1: to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm,
0: this is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Uh.
2: Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Zara McDonald and a slightly croaky, slightly sick Michelle Andrews, but you're also sick, so both of us are. It's going to be a
1: fun ride, hey!
2: (laughs) Coming up on today's show, a little sugar hit from the Brownlow Red Carpet. Plus, why do so many middle-aged men hate Greta Thunberg? And the Sarah Wilson, I quit sugar blaze that started in the Daily Mail and has sparked spot fires all over social media. But
1: first, Zara, how was your week? Should we just start with yours?
2: I mean, yeah, best week ever, because obviously Richmond won the grand final, and not only that, I got to be there with my mum and my sister, thank you to a very, very kind listener, Jamie, who put us in the Kennedy box, and it was just the most, I, I don't even know, it was like a fairy tale. I couldn't believe it. I didn't get to go to the 2017 grand final, and here I was at the 2019 grand final in a box. I
1: have a question about the game. Yes. Would you have preferred it to be closer Okay, I so. always wonder this because it's like kind of an anti-climax by the time the siren goes.
2: So I turned to mum and Claire probably at the end of the third quarter. We would have been up by maybe 60 points. And I said, a little part of me does wish for it to be a little bit closer at the end. Or mm. I like I just wanted it to be slightly closer. Not that I'm not grateful for the win because fucking amazing to win by 89 points. I just kind of felt for the GWS fans, number one, who had travelled interstate to watch oh that God. insipid performance. <laughs> but also everyone at home who, like, plans a full day around the grand final and then everyone gets together and watches that shit show of a it was game. It boring. Yeah, I, I don't blame you for thinking that. It wasn't boring for me whatsoever. It was the best day, but – Pretty boring for anyone who doesn't go for Richmond, right? Yeah, fair. Were you disappointed? I mean, you were going for GWS. You I, got the scarf. I got
1: quite a few DMs being like, where is all your like GWS support? I was actually <laughs> sideways with the bout of food poisoning on grand final day, which was yesterday. We are recording at 7 o'clock in the morning on Sunday. <laughs>
2: And so I just, I literally was so sick. You had food poisoning. You've got food poisoning and I've got like a, (laughs) like a weird throat cough virus. And
1: so I just didn't give a shit by the time (laughs) the game came around. Like I couldn't have given the game less energy. No, I'm kidding. I was still very much going for GWS, but also I was so ill and they were playing so terribly (laughs) that I just got so over it so quickly. And I was sitting at home by myself watching. But I have to say, Mish, even though I was sidelined with illness, I feel like I am on the GWS bandwagon because I love an underdog. I'm happy to be on any underdog's bandwagon and I feel like GWS might need me right now.
2: I think they absolutely do, to be honest.
1: Any who, did you read, watch, or listen? Did you have time outside of Richmondness? I
2: I did actually stumble upon Gary Vee, which is embarrassing because Gary Vee has a huge audience. For those not aware, he is kind of like a motivational speaker, entrepreneur, that kind of guy. He has a podcast, pretty sure he's got a YouTube channel. He's Everywhere, all over he, social media. He is everywhere. Yeah. I had never really tapped into the Gary Vee experience, and I did so this week. Very, very different kind of guy, different kind of content, different kind of energy. You messaged me when you're on the bathroom floor in not your finest moment, saying, <laughs> I need some podcast recommendations. And I said to you, I'm like, well, Gary Vee's is pretty good, but his energy is way too high for someone who has food poisoning. So I kind of had to veer you away from that. However, when you are feeling better, are you feeling better today? You look uh, better. Yeah,
1: I think so. Pretty bit. good.
2: I would definitely recommend Gary Vee. You have to kind of get on board the confidence of him. It's kind of endearing. I mean, someone that's successful, you're going to be confident. And it's almost a good thing because I think – we put this pressure on successful people to self-flagellate all the time. and I mean,
1: that's a very Australian thing, but America is different, I think.
2: Yeah, I know, which is why as an Australian listener, I wonder if I would struggle with it more than what an American Probably. listener would. Totally. Definitely recommend that. How was your week? What do you recommend as well?
1: No, my week was pretty good, apart from being sidelined for about 24 hours, but that's totally <laughs> fine. Um, I did manage to consume more content, I think, on that day than I had in the last month, which was a silver lining because I hadn't had time really to myself or to read or listen to anything properly Mm -hmm. and give it my full attention. I listened to about seven podcasts yesterday. I also read so much. The things that I would recommend, and I know I half recommended this in the newsletter, but it is a two-part podcast um, episode and I want to recommend both parts. Did you end up listening to this? No. You'll find it very interesting. So um, it's an episode. It's two episodes of The Daily by The New York Times and it's interviews with Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, who obviously broke the Harvey Weinstein story back in 2017. They have very recently written a book called She Said about that entire experience of breaking the story. And what the two-part podcast episodes with The Daily do is they focus on two other women, Lisa Bloom and Gloria Allred. Lisa Bloom was originally Harvey Weinstein's lawyer when that story broke. And it was weird because Lisa Bloom is one of the most high profile... Feminist lawyers, right? Feminist lawyers in the country in America, and it was a that was a story in and of itself. When the Harvey Weinstein story that broke, that is so weird. As to why Lisa Bloom was fighting for Harvey Weinstein, she stepped down within days. Her mother is a woman called Gloria Allred, who has fought for sexual assault victims across the country. And when Lisa Bloom was announced as part of Harvey Weinstein's team, Gloria Allred came out publicly and started advocating for victims. But it's not as cut and dry in that and it's so interesting these two episodes talking about the role that those two women played and even the kind of the murky role that Gloria Alred played as that story came out. And it's very confronting to hear two of the most high-profile advocates for women in the U.S., say one thing and do another when push comes to shove.
2: Good God. That sounds like something I need to be in the right headspace to listen to.
1: Yeah, it's not even particularly heavy. It's just very interesting. The other thing that I would recommend as well, just quickly, is A Piece in the Guardian by Tanya Gold. And do you remember, uh, it was a few months ago now, when that Nike plus-size mannequin went viral and there was a piece in the Telegraph that was absolutely slammed because Tanya Gold was the writer of that story. Yes. And she basically said that it was glorifying
2: obesity. Yes, she was using disgraceful. She said a woman who is heaving with fat and called. That people gargantuan.
1: Yeah, it was weird language. Like, it was very strange language. She wrote a story for The Guardian about what happens when you find yourself the centre of a Twitter storm Ah. and explained the background to that story, the fallout of that story, and I think – Regardless of what you think about her words now, stories like that are so important for us to read to think about the person that's always at the centre, regardless of how much you hate their words and hate their work. So I'll put that in the show notes and I'll also put that in the Facebook group because I think we speak so much on this podcast about the pendulum swinging too far Mm -hmm. and uh, people who do kind of problematic things in the public eye just getting absolutely dragged through the mud. And I think reading. That perspective is always really important.
2: You know what we forgot to tell the listeners? What? When this episode goes up, I would have crashed your family holiday already. When you guys are listening to this on Monday, Zara and I will be in Byron Bay because Zara and her parents were going away. And after I had too many grapefruit cocktails on Wednesday night, <laughs> I decided to book a flight. So I'm coming. In fairness,
1: I wasn't going away with my parents either. My parents were going away, and I was like, "Hey, I could do some work <laughs> up there." And then you're like, "So could I?" And my dad are like, "What the fuck is happening?" I'm happened? so
2: sorry, Trisha and David. If If you're listening to this, but yeah, I'm crashing the McDonald family holiday. Yeah.
1: So we will update you guys next week on how that goes. (laughs) One little thing before we do get into the show properly is I think we should issue a
2: correction of sorts. We should definitely issue a correction. I tried wherever I could to stand up for a company that hadn't even launched yet last week, which was called the weight loss trilogy. And I thought I was doing the right thing retrospectively, very, very clear I did the wrong thing in that I stood up for a company that promptly shared a whole bunch of quite damaging weight loss advice and diet advice. And we'll play a snippet from last week, I think, where we tried to defend the weight loss trilogy.
0: There is a GP behind this, and I think that's really important. If there were two health coaches and nothing else, I would agree and
2: I would slam this there's a GP and therefore I don't see it as problematic.
0: And let me tell you right now, if the weight loss trilogy ends up going down this really shitty path where they employ influencers to try and conflate wellness with weight all the time, or they try to imply that laxatives are a healthy way to re- reduce your size, you can be sure I will slam them on this very podcast. The thing is, I think it's important for us to note a couple of things. There was a
1: many, I've quite a few people that pulled us up on the fact that just because a doctor is involved doesn't automatically make it good or safe. And this is a good, point I think we probably should have been clearer I guess what we were hoping with the weight loss trilogy is that it could exist in a way that doesn't directly play into diet culture that it could play a different role it turns out it does just play into diet culture um interestingly the weight loss trilogy have had to delete all of their original post and issue an apology of their own and context of their own particularly after they told essentially told women not to snack
2: Yeah, and don't tell women that. Snacking's the best.
1: And the thing is, they said in their apology, look, I know a lot of people are asking for our research and our sources – and Instagram is not really conducive. Instagram captions aren't really in- conducive to sharing your sources when you're sharing your point. And I think that kind of annoyed me first and foremost because it's like if you're going to leverage Instagram for what it is to build a following,
2: find a way. Find a way. Like, Can't you take a photo of like uh, I don't know if you made like some type of graphic where you had information down the bottom of that, also put in the source of the journal where you got that from?
1: I just think context and communication are crucial if you're in the business of talking about totally. weight loss And it was almost like. They turned around and be like, but it's too hard for us to do that. And if it's too hard for you to do that, then Instagram's not your platform.
2: Yeah. I think when I was talking about the doctor last week, I was just happy to see a weight loss program headed up by someone who had a relevant degree, when so often we see people with zero degrees. Do this type of stuff. Well,
1: it just speaks to how low our bar is.
2: Yeah, it's super fucking low. I yeah. totally regret standing up for this business. I just thought that we were getting our backs up preemptively, which we were. However, the preemptively up backs were right. Yeah. And they deserve to be up. No,
1: totally, totally, totally. Because I was on a similar wavelength to you in that can we possibly be this outraged this early? I don't think we actually could have, though their activity <laughs> a little later proved that.
2: The outrage was right. Yeah,
1: the outrage (laughs) should have been there in some formal capacity into the
2: show. Yes, let's talk about something far more fun and sugary, which of course is the brown low. It feels like a while ago now, Zara, because it was literally a week ago today. There was one moment that I really want to discuss. But first of all, what was your take on the night?
1: I always look at the red carpet and think you couldn't pay me any amount of money to get me on there. Nah. I know I love fashion. I also prefer less ball gowny evening wear than I do more street wear which makes me sound like a wanker it would be terrifying yeah it'd be
2: terrifying it'd be fun how many moments are there in life where you get to dress up and feel like you look your best and have like a glitz and glamour night like that. I would love it. I, would, I wouldn't I would like the photo, the cameras and everything. But going to the Brownlow would be such a cool experience.
1: Going would be a good experience. The red carpet is what I'm
2: talking about. Yeah. Like the
1: cameras in your face. Like there's no amount of selfies on your iPhone that can train you for that kind of invasive capturing of you.
2: Mind you though, I wonder if that type of invasive capturing is only for the top players and the top girlfriends. Whereas if you're just there with your boyfriend who might only play a handful of games that year or was one of the uh, lesser known ones on the night. I don't think the photographers and the magazines and the reporters would care about you that much.
1: No, it's kind of true. Harsh, for, harsh <laughs> but true. But they do play their favourites and there's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah. Felicity Harley wrote a really interesting piece for women this week. Felicity Harley is, she used to be the editor of Women. She's just had a baby so she's just moved to editor-at-large of Women. And she's also the wife of Tom Harley who used to play for Geelong who is, is, is now in Sydney. Felicity Harley.
0: Wow.
1: And she was talking about how the brown low has changed over the years. And she said when she first went, which was about 12 years ago, I was working at Cosmopolitan magazine back then and our fashion editor loaned me a red dress from the back of her wardrobe. A friend did my hair and makeup. I grabbed an old pair of heels and I bought my accessories from SportsGirl. It was simple, stress-free, and really it was like going to your school formal. <laughs> you could count the flash bulbs on the red carpet. Social media didn't exist. And there was one well-known wag called Beck. I flew back to Sydney the next day and no one asked about it. I think that is such an interesting point as to how the night has changed and how the focus on the women is stronger and more intense than
2: ever. Absolutely. I think the focus on the night in general is so strong now that it can almost make a career and make a personality shine and put them on a public platform where everyone knows their name the next morning.
1: Well, it's more of these women getting to have a moment and a moment can make you money. This was the other point that Felicity Harley made in this story. She said, yep, it can cost a bomb to attend the Brownlow, upwards of four grand if you opt for the whole shebang. Get it all right, get in the papers, on telly, get all over social media and you've set yourself up. Standing out at the Brownlow can give your social media profile a hefty boost, which in turn can kickstart any career dream. It's
2: so true it's though. It's absolutely true. Like, okay, so for those who didn't see this, which I doubt there are many of you because this went truly viral Nadia Bartel, after the whole shit show with Jimmy a few weeks ago, which, of course, we touched on in our episode. I think we called it Nadia Bartel and media breadcrumbing, if you want to go back and listen, if you missed it. She stepped out in this gorgeous baby blue jeton, Is it pronounced chaton?
1: Oh, look at us. Jaton?
2: Jaton. Sure. I think. Jaton gown. So, for context, <laughs> Nadia's photos on Instagram typically, according to Social Blade, get about 18,000 likes and 500 comments. This photo of Nadia at the Brownlow in that gorgeous dress got 102,000 likes and 6,000 comments. We shared it on our own Instagram page because it was just the perfect, like, revenge. I'm better than ever moment.
1: There was a little bit of that to it. And I think whether or not she meant it like that or whether we just kind of projected that narrative onto the photo doesn't really matter, to be she looked honest. She looks better.
2: Than- that photo is, I reckon, absolutely there was a lot of strategy and thinking behind that she needed to have a gorgeous dress and she needed to be best dressed on that night. And it's
1: not about aesthetics. I don't think it's definitely more about power in that kind of very high profile setting. I do think the color and the lighter hair plays into it. I know this sounds incredibly frivolous, but it's true. I think also the idea that she was able to upload before anybody else mattered. I have no doubt that that would have been some kind of meticulous strategy behind it because she needed to have her moment, and I think when we're talking about Brownlow moments, this is what makes some
2: careers. Absolutely, and it's overly earnest, and I don't mean it to be that way. I think it's just worth noting in that Jimmy wasn't at the Brownlow from what I could tell. I didn't see him anywhere. He obviously is going through a bit of a rough patch at the moment with the media given what reportedly happened to their marriage, but I do really appreciate Nadia Bartel as a woman who – was potentially wronged by her husband, rocking up in an industry where he thrived and she was the partner. She hosted the Brownlow Red Carpet. And I think that's really brave. I know lots of people were taking the piss out of publications like the Herald Sun for commenting on that and saying that she was brave for being there. But I don't think there's anyone listening to this that could say that it would be an easy thing to rock up to your former husband's workplace and host a red carpet function where all of his friends, all of his acquaintances, all of his connections are, and you were always the plus one. She, on Monday night, was the star, and she unashamedly took that spot, and I think that's something to applaud.
1: It is absolutely something to applaud, and there's no doubt that it's not easy, but also I don't think there's anyone that can ignore the fact that if she did manage to nail it, as she did, it was going to be a career defining moment for her in some capacity. Of
2: course, but that doesn't make it any easier. That makes it even harder, I would say. Yeah,
1: true. It puts the pressure on for sure, but it gives you more reason to be there.
2: I think that her career will only go from strength to strength from here because she did really nail the red carpet and I loved seeing her on there. I think it was a great moment and Also, to see all these women getting around her, sharing on their social media profiles like Beck Judd, just what a good job she was doing and how much she was owning it. I know it's frivolous and it's silly and it's fucking brown low red carpet. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And there's smarter and better things to talk about but it was a nice moment. It felt like a bit of a sisterhood vibe.
1: Well, I said to you, and this was like, I think I was very tired when I said it to you because it did come across as overly earnest, but I can't remember a time that I've ever seen so many women congregate in the same space, which was the comment section of her photo. And I don't think, I mean, for all we denigrate social media and its flaws, there is great things that come from it, which is seeing a whole heap. And I say, when I say a whole heap, I mean hundreds, nearly thousands of high profile women come together in a public comment section to rally behind one person. Like that's a a sense of camaraderie that I doubt we would have ever seen before. Thank you. Next bitch. And now it is time for the Quick and Dirty. As always, we bring you five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. Michelle, what have you got for me?
2: Hello. My first story, Lindsay Lohan makes return to music after 11 years with a track called Xanax. That is from Grazia Magazine. So
1: can you, I have not seen this story
2: around. I've seen Lindsay Lohan's name
1: around a lot because of The Masked Singer, but I don't even know what this song is.
2: Well, some of the headlines are interesting. Different music publications like Music Feeds wrote their headline, Lindsay Lohan releases new single Xanax and it's actually good. I might actually put a little 10 second clip in here for everyone to have a listen. What do you think?
1: Uh, I mean, it's I... not awful. Yeah. But how low was our bar going? Into Heidi Montag today?
2: is our level of yeah. Low. yeah.
1: So Heidi <laughs> Montag was my bar, <laughs> which means, yes, that was better, but it, I, my ears don't need to hear it again. <laughs>
2: My second story, the Veronica's say they feel bullied by Qantas following flight fiasco. That is from today.
1: This is an interesting slash kind of bizarre story now.
2: Super bizarre. What do you know about it?
1: So I, not a heap. I just know that they got kicked off a plane. Yes. I know that they were then interviewed on the project about it and Waleed and was it Tommy Little maybe? Yes pushed them into a corner by saying maybe it was a PR stunt for the new MTV show. Then they said they can't talk about it anymore because of legals and I'm just very confused. Okay
2: probably one of the more bizarre stories that I've seen floating around this year. I have done all the reading I can on this and I still can't pinpoint what happened. Oh,
1: great, because I've done a little bit of reading and that's all I've got.
2: (laughs) So from what I can tell for everyone listening, the Veronicas were seated in economy class on a Qantas flight. The wheels of their trolleys were jutting out into the aisle. So when a flight attendant walked past, they said, can you actually fix that? Apparently, there is Qantas protocol that you as a flight attendant can't move a passenger luggage the passenger has to do it so the veronicas were on the inside of the aisle and asked another passenger the passenger offered to get up and change this wheel thing around then Qantas said no it had to be the veronicas and it just apparently from there just exploded that Qantas all of a sudden decided the veronicas were being too difficult too diva-esque i guess and needed to be kicked off the flight and they called the police the plane then sat there on the tarmac for 45 minutes overtime. and other passengers in the area have actually spoken to the media and said things online that indicate that the veronicas didn't really do anything wrong which i find really fascinating a lot of the passengers said they had no idea why Qantas reacted the way they did and it seemed very unusual
1: that Is very interesting. That said, I feel like Qantas aren't stupid. They're not going to kick two people like the Veronicas off a plane and not realise it's going to make news. And their name was going to be dragged through it too.
0: But who's to say
2: that the flight attendant didn't know who the Veronicas are? Not everyone in Australia would know who the Veronicas are. It's not like this is head office being like, yes or no. No, It would be one flight attendant on the day.
1: Totally. I would say most people would know what they look like
2: though. I don't know if that's accurate. Nah, I think our age, absolutely. I think if you're talking, I think the flight attendant was a middle-aged man. I don't know if my dad would know who the Veronica's are.
1: I wonder if much more will come out about this because I still don't really – I can't make any sense about this. I'm interested by the the accusations from the project that it was a PR stunt for their new television show – I don't know where I sit, but I will happily watch this space.
2: My third story, keeping up with the Kardashian star Malika Hack expecting first child. I'm overjoyed, she says. That is from people.
1: Did you see this story? I have
2: not seen this once. You brought this to the table. This is
1: so strange. So I actually don't even know who Malika Hack is. Oh, I saw this, Sarah. But I saw this story everywhere because Hack announced her pregnancy Through people, but it was sponsored. So she sponsored it with Clear Blue. It's really weird to read. Are you kidding? Yeah. A sponsored pregnancy announcement. So she preferred... So this is a quote from people from the story. Hack, who prefers not to disclose the father's identity at this time, first learned she was pregnant after partnering with Clear Blue oh, and monitoring off. monitoring her body for several months with Clear Blue's advanced oh. digital ovulation test and realizing her period was three days late. The Good American model then took one of Clear Blue's digital pregnancy tests, which delivered the positive results that Hack described as shocking and unlike any of her past experiences.
2: For those... Who are curious? I reckon Cleveland would have paid upwards of fifty grand for those three mentions. I that is, more yeah, are. that would be because there's
1: photos as well of her, like with the pregnancy test, oh, and the pregnancy off. test is in focus. So I, this story is so so strange about what point clear blue got involved how long they were talking for the pressure to then get pregnant the minute you start partnering with some kind of pregnancy test
2: that's naive she only found a partner after she got pregnant and then is going backwards and saying sure i was using all these products clear blue would have said we need you to mention this this and this we need three products to be promoted and this is what you're going to do and she would have been like yeah of course i was using your ovulation test thingy majig Who's to say this was even a planned pregnancy if she's not disclosing who the father is?
1: Yeah, it wasn't. It's just seven o'clock on a Sunday morning and I've been sick. But you make great points.
2: (laughs) You spent too long on the bathroom floor.
1: (laughs) But what a weird story. It's so weird to read as well. It's very much got remnants of that sponsored engagement tour that we spoke about. It's almost Black
2: Mirror-esque now, how much people are willing to sell their big life milestones. It's beyond Black Mirror-esque, I think. (sighs) My fourth story, Angie's Bachelorette Journey finally has a premiere date. Premiere? Premiere. That is from Pedestrian and it is airing Zara on October 9th, which I believe is this, is it this week? Next week. Next week.
1: And it is the same week, Michelle, as Love Island premieres. Oh, Love Island Australia premieres on the 7th, Angie Kent premieres on October 9th. So we've got a Monday and Wednesday set up. I am interested to see how this one goes. Angie's also just announced uh, her new book as well.
2: Yes. What did you think of that? Feels too early. Feels way too early. I'm I. I don't know. I find it interesting. I think it's a memoir, right? And again, I don't know whether or not I want to read the memoir before the show's even come out. The show would be the most interesting part that I want to know about. And I don't think Warner Brothers would let Angie say anything interesting about the show because her contract would be running for months after it finishes.
1: Yeah, I'd want to read this book into two years time. It reminds me of when The Honey Badger wrote his book before the show had finished as well. Such an odd decision. And also you have no idea how the show is going to end up. You have no idea how the public's going to receive you and you have no idea how that book's therefore going to be received. The Honey Badger's book was looked at as a joke.
2: Yeah, and it's a level of saturation that I don't think is necessarily good for anyone's image. Angie Kent will be everywhere. If anything, the demand for her will be higher when the show finishes and she's not in our living rooms twice a week, every week.
1: Yeah. I know that there are probably a bunch of like PR experts on this who are telling her that it's the right thing to do. But as someone who consumes content every day and who loves books, and I think we do work a little more in this space, I would much prefer this stuff to be scattered and for someone not to be everywhere all at once.
2: I'm really interested to see how this sells. I'm trying to think of who the reader is in this scenario. Who wants to buy a book about The Bachelorette's life before The Bachelorette? I'm not sure. I'm very curious to see how this sells. Will you be watching the season?
1: Uh, probably not. To be honest, I'll watch the You're first- You're
2: done t- with Bachelor, yeah, aren't you? I-, I am.
1: It'll take a lot for them to get me back. I think I'll watch the first couple of episodes because I always do, because I want to get a sense of what it is. Also,
2: it's part of my job. And like, also, you understand. need to pick the winner because you pick the winner of every season ever. Well,
1: that too. And they have also got a good plan in putting planting her brother in the first rose ceremony to kind of- mm. Be the mole. Cat amongst the pigeons. Yes,
2: exactly. (laughs) The cream
1: rises to the top. Yes, Um But apart from that, I'm not interested in the slightest.
2: No, neither. I know that's an unpopular opinion and probably quite a controversial one because lots of our listeners are super excited for this season. I'm not a big fan of reality stars from Gogglebox going on to then have TV careers. I just think it's an interesting... Call. I mean, I'm happy to be proven wrong. I That's almost a- think anything will be better than Ali Ojan from last year. That was the worst season in Bachelor history, Bachelorette or Bachelor.
1: That's. A- can I just go back to this as a big call that definitely needs like an entire segment to unpack, and perhaps we can when the Bachelorette actually airs. You don't want Gogglebox stars to go into the Bachelorette. No, because Gogglebox. Or you don't want. You don't want Bachel- Gogglebox stars to have TV careers.
2: I don't know. Maybe that's too over the top or like it's quite absolute. it's, It's a sweeping generalization. I wasn't a big fan of this idea when it came up. I think Gogglebox is like a really pure and beautiful show. And I don't think the people on there generally go on there to make a profile for themselves. And I was very surprised when I heard she was going to be Bachelorette because it's going from one variety of reality TV, which is literally taking the piss out of everything on television, to then playing into one of the most contrived infrastructures on television in Australia.
1: I think there are a few steps before that, though, which was them going, and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And yeah, easy, I wasn't then a fan of that radio. either. No, me either. But I think and it's almost too far gone now.
2: <laughs> My last story. Miley Cyrus says goodbyes are never easy in cheeky bikini snaps after Caitlin Carter split. That is from Yahoo. So they're done. Yeah, I mean, were they ever a thing, do we reckon? No. I don't think they were ever a thing. They I think never. this was all PR again. I think this was just... A ploy to make Miley Cyrus look like she was living life larger than ever after the Liam Hemsworth split.
1: Yeah, I don't actually think they were together at all.
2: How could you possibly be in a relationship for a month and be so open with the public about how it's going? Surely if it was a legit relationship and it fizzled this quickly, they would have kept up pretenses for a longer time to make it look like it wasn't some.
1: Anything this public, both in its infancy and its exit – I think we should just be super skeptical of. I think like if you're going to publicly announce your relationship in one way and then publicly denounce your relationship (laughs) in another way, then it probably
2: was never real. I agree with that. That's all I've got for you. Thank you so much. If you didn't know who Greta Thunberg was last month, we bet you do now. Last week, a video of the 16-year-old climate change activist speaking to world leaders at the 2019 UN Climate Action Summit in New York went viral, with Thunberg lambasting politicians for stalling on meaningful climate change action. An outpouring of love and admiration was followed by an equally fierce backlash, mostly Zara coming from rather pissed-off middle-aged white men. What is it about Greta Thunberg that annoys middle-aged men so much?
1: Isn't that the million-dollar question right now? It's pretty amazing to see this kind of backlash for a young woman just wanting to stand up for something. And I say something that's not particularly controversial. I mean, climate change can be a little controversial to a certain pocket of people.
2: If you've got your head in the sand, But it wasn't
1: like her quotes were particularly controversial. I think the most searing for me was people are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing, we are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of
2: eternal economic growth. How dare you? It was the how dare you that really got me. It was like a sucker punch.
1: Yeah, it's a sucker punch and I think that would have got the backs up of a whole bunch of middle-aged white men, and I know we're stereotyping, but they are generally middle-aged white men, in this case in particular, who don't like being told what to do by a teenager. And I think there are so many layers to this. I think there's so much nuance to this conversation, but I think the baseline is that people, particularly baby boomers, don't like being told what to do.
2: And if you're listening to this and going, okay, so who are the middle-aged white men who hate Greta Thunberg so much? This is who they are. Allow us. Former AFL player Sam Newman (laughs) called her a shit. His tweet was, this annoying little brat addressed the UN on the so-called climate crisis, who lets this little shit have a platform. Then there was, of course, my favorite, Andrew Bolt, who has previously mocked Greta for her Asperger's diagnosis, calling her deeply disturbed and strange. Then he labeled her as an extremely anxious girl. We also had Lyle Shelton, who called her hysterical, my favorite sexist insult, Zara. We had Karl Stefanovic, who I don't know if he's trying to go for a job on Sky News or what's happening (laughs) or
1: 2GB or something.
2: Carl's generally quite insightful in my opinion with a lot of his hot takes. This hot take was atrocious. He said – She was very fired up, wasn't she? I thought, what are my kids doing on school holidays next week? Not doing that. There was a definite threat of, she's got her knickers in a twist, was really it. That, oh, she's a bit angry. She's a bit fiery, this young girl. What gives her the right to tell us, as older men, what to do and that we've done the wrong thing? And then, of course, we also had the President of the United States, one Donald Trump, who tweeted saying, she seems like a very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see. Love that sarcasm. And then finally, the U.S. conservative called her a mentally ill Swedish child who needs a spanking. It's so fucked up when you think about it. Like, it is
1: absurd. I think there beyond the commentary around her Asperger's and her being mentally ill, I do think there's this absolute underlying threat of the fact that she's just too dramatic. Mm-hmm. She's a drama queen, and I think Lauren Rosewan wrote a really brilliant piece in the ABC this week about why so many middle-aged men are getting their backs up about her. And she wrote, we quite like it, say, when they, and when she's talking about they, we're talking about 16-year-old girls, swim fast enough to earn us a gold medal. We especially like them consuming our products and chiming about them on social media, but we largely abhor girl culture. Things that girls like, things that girls are interested in are routinely devalued and considered as trivial. If a book, a band, a film, a foodstuff has a disproportionate Teen girl following, think Twilight, think Taylor Swift, think Billie Eilish, it's rendered culturally unimportant at best and as vacuous crap at worst. The moment girls scream and cry over something is the moment our culture has decided it's wholly unimportant. That's so true. It is absolutely true. I know we spoke about Harry Styles a couple of years a couple of weeks ago, actually giving respect and credence to his own followers who were teen girls because they often are denigrated so much. And I think this piece from Loewen Rosewand speaks exactly to that idea that young girls are never taken seriously, no matter what they're talking about, even if it's a an activist.
2: And this response to Greta was so widespread that the response to the response ended up being satirical news websites coming out with things like the Greta Thunberg hotline for men who were struggling with incandescent rage that they mm. just didn't know what, how to deal with. One quote that I really loved was actually from Jennifer O'Connell from the Irish Times, who said, Who's the real freak here? The activist whose determination has single-handedly started a powerful global movement for change? Or the middle-aged man taunting a child with Asperger's syndrome from behind the safety of his computer screen?
1: It might seem naive, but I think every time I'm reading this stuff from people like Sam Newman or Lyle Shelton or even, you know, like Mark Latham, whoever it might be, I genuinely find myself wondering how they're backing this anger up because it sounds so absurd. Like, what are you rooting your anger in publicly so it makes you seem reasonable and logical and like your point matters because I don't understand your point other than the fact you're just put off by a young girl with passion?
2: Well, I think those men have bought into such a flawed system and a Flawed way of thinking in that they're going down with a sinking ship, right? And they've been so vocal about this climate change denialism for so many decades now that they can't just flip. They can't critique Greta Thunberg on what she's saying because Greta Thunberg isn't saying anything wrong. She's just saying, let's listen to the scientists. She's gotten on this stage and said, I'm not the expert. Let's listen to the experts. This is what the literature says. This is what the science has been saying for 30 years now. And men like Sam Newman, Can't critique what she's saying because what she's saying is so robust. Bust, and it's there. It's concrete. So what he can do is he can criticize her, and that's why they're all going for the person. They're going for the messenger. The message that Greta Thunberg is sharing is not new. We've had men say this: David Attenborough, Leonardo DiCaprio, Mark Ruffalo have all delivered the exact same message on climate change. And these older guys never come for Leonardo DiCaprio. I haven't seen any of that kind of commentary around him. But as soon as a young woman wants to do it, they see they're in. They see a vulnerability there, and they attack it with so much force that it kind of makes you feel winded the fact that sam newman is going after this girl when he criticized adam goods for daring to call out a 16 year old i can't
1: even be bothered giving sam newman airtime right now like i don't even want to write his name he's so irrelevant
2: Mm. his opinions are irrelevant and so is he and like how can an older guy like that go for a girl it's just the power dynamic there and his words and his language are so acidic He seems to be a man filled with so much hate he doesn't even know where to place it anymore. Well,
1: it's more like I actually think he's got a sense now that he's becoming more and more irrelevant, that he's – Words and his tone and his opinions need to be so outrageous in order to get the attention that he so desperately Mm -hmm. craves. I think that another quote in that Jennifer Jennifer O'Connell piece, which is really good in the Irish Times, is about why these men find her so triggering. And she said, there's the fact that we don't like being made to feel bad about our life choices. That's human nature. It's why we sneer at vegans. It's why we're suspicious of people who are sober at parties. I think that's a really good point. We hate moralizers or being told we're lazy or even being told we're at fault for a global environmental crisis, like we don't want to have any part to play and we hate being told that there are things that we can do or habits we can change in order to make a difference. I just think we can't be fucked and we hate being told it by a young 16 year old. I also wonder, Michelle, if there is something in here about the fact that she was, her face was twisted a bit. Like she was upset. She was mm. angry and she takes this seriously. And I think we don't have any space
2: for young women who take themselves seriously in these sort of contexts. Or have a lot of anger. Yeah, are not afraid to show that anger. We still struggle so much with female anger. It's like, oh, relax, darling. It's not that bad. You've got a pretty good life. There's definitely that hint of Oh, she's a bit serious. That whole Nick is in a twist thing that I was talking about earlier. It's like, shouldn't you be playing outside? You've like, you've got sillier things to consume your time. Why are you getting so serious so young? And how dare you as a young person tell us what to think and what to do? I don't think we should look to Greta as the be-all and end-all on climate change, right? I think this is where people are getting confused. Greta is one person and she is a vehicle for change and that is amazing. She isn't asking us to all look at her as the person who's going to save us. What we can do is we can definitely carefully dissect her words and her role and her power here. I think we're all smarter for doing that. But... It's almost like conservatives have confused this, thinking that we're all looking to Greta as some kind of deity. No one's thinking that. No one's thinking she's a deity. People are just thinking she's a fucking brave kid who's dedicating her time and energy to something really great. And the quote that I keep seeing wheeled out by conservative writers is that she's causing so many other children anxiety over this and we need to let kids be kids and kids shouldn't be concerned about this stuff. Newsflash, kids are concerned about this stuff and they've been concerned about this stuff for a long time. Why are so many kids leaving school to go protest about climate change on the streets of Melbourne and Sydney and New York? Kids are already anxious. That horse has bolted and kids should be anxious because your decisions – and your level of thinking is jeopardizing our future. They need a Greta Thunberg. Why do you think Greta Thunberg has the platform she has if other children are not feeling the same way? She is merely vocalizing what millions of young people, young Australians, young Americans, young Germans are thinking.
1: Well, it's not like Greta Thunberg created a movement of anxiety amongst young people at all. She clearly just tapped into something that already existed. It's actually not physically possible for a 16-year-old to create that much anxiety around the world. There's clearly Existing anxiety there. I think it must be fear, which sounds incredibly idealistic to say, but it has to be something as to why the same type of person, in that the Sam Newmans, the Lyle Sheltons, or the Andrew Bolts have this kind of reaction to her. It has to be something. Why is the same type of man getting fired up over something that doesn't affect them? I think it is a control thing. I think it's about power that they don't have as much power anymore, that her unruliness or her yes inability to play by the rules or her desire to push against the grain at any cost really riles them up because I think to them she's unpredictable and I don't think they know what to do with
2: unpredictability and unpredictability coming from young women I think these men have probably seen young teenage girls as mere supplicants and if they're not mere supplicants they're probably sexual objects And when a young woman isn't performing for them, when she's not appearing to care about the male gaze, when she's not appearing to concern herself with what these men deem young girl topics, they don't know where to place her. She doesn't fit in any box for them. She's not dressing up for them. She's not performing for them. She's going against them. And for the first time in their lives, they can't handle that. I wanted to finish with a
1: quote from Sally Rugg, who is the executive director of Change.org org who spearheaded the marriage equality campaign in 2017 and she wrote on twitter very recently in campaigning you're not trying to persuade everyone only the group of people who matter to the change your message should piss off your strong opponents otherwise you're not having an impact misogynist science deniers popping off means Greta is doing smart good work and I think that's the only solace I can take from all of this This week, an interview with founder of I Quit Sugar, Sarah Wilson, was published in Mail Online that quoted the wellness author as saying she quit quitting sugar and no longer abides by the rules of the movement that made her millions. The journalist Eve Simmons inferred, too, that Wilson's disordered relationship with food misled her followers and used the feature to debunk both Wilson's movement and her motivations. But here's where it gets strange. Wilson hit back, denying many of the accusations at hand and denying she said she quit quitting Quitting sugar. Mish, it's been a strange few days of back and forth. How much were you across the story as it unfolded?
2: Uh, not across it enough mm. until we decided to do this because we kind of turned to each other and went, What is happening here? I think this story passed me by because I was a little bit too young when Sarah Wilson became a huge name in the wellness and food blogging space. When we were working in digital media, I do remember Sarah Wilson had a fractured relationship with mainstream publications and that publications, including ones that we had worked for, would publish something about Sarah and then she would write a retort on her own blog post and it would kind of go tit for tat from there. That was the only real knowledge I had of it, that this was a woman who was a very, very successful journalist in Australia in magazines who then kind of got on the wellness bandwagon and made a lot of money out of quitting sugar, which she says, and she claims, helps her helped her autoimmune disease. She
1: did. So for those who aren't across exactly who Sarah Wilson is or what she did, she inspired a huge movement when she released her first book, I Quit Sugar, in 2012, which amassed a following of almost 100,000 Facebook fans and 390,000 followers on Instagram. She said in that book, as Mish said, that giving up sugar in all its forms helped her to lose weight and heal. At its peak, the I Quit Sugar website site attracted 2 million visitors a month and turned a profit of $2.76 million a year. The interesting part now for me about this story is, A, why the journalist decided to publish the story she did and Sarah Wilson's subsequent response. So Sarah Wilson was quoted as saying, it's in my past now. Now I say, I quit. I quit, sugar. I can do what I want. I love freaking people out by eating cake. I eat chocolate every day and I love red wine too. I can't live without that stuff. The information is out there for people to use. Anyone can take it and run with it. Now I have other passions to pursue. She then, once this was published, went on Facebook and Instagram to accuse the publication of doing a job on her. So on Instagram, Wilson said she met with the Mail on Sunday journalist Eve Simmons for an interview. But the interview was actually about her new book on anxiety, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which was published in Australia a few years ago Mm -hmm. now. But Wilson said Simmons used the article to claim she was dysfunctional around food by writing there were whispers of secret eating problems around the online wellness community. Wilson said, when you get past the non-truth and the blatantly misleading information about my I quit sugar message, it's clear the through line is to pass opinion on the crux of my anxiety. She also accused the article of being a clickbait story to paint me as being dysfunctional around food and said that context around her quotes and relevant bits of their chat was not included. What do you think about that? As a journalist, it's very hard for me to get my head around the fact that someone would publish quotes that didn't exist. Sarah Wilson is saying that she either didn't say some of this stuff or it was taken out of context. And I can absolutely appreciate that things can be taken out of context, but it boggles my mind to think of a journalist that would publish quotes that weren't said on the record.
2: I don't think it's a case of that. I think after I did a bit of my own research, it's a case of Eve Simmons repurposing quotes and presenting them as new information and using them to paint a story that I don't think is accurate. Sarah Wilson has said for three years that she eats sugar in small doses. Sarah Wilson has said that she eats the same amount of sugar that the World Health Organization guidelines stipulate, which is between six and nine teaspoons a day. She has said that she has done that since early 2016 and she's told the Daily Mail that before. She also told the Daily Mail in 2016 that she eats chocolate every day and drinks two glasses of wine every night. So that's not new information. What I think has happened here is that the journalist, Simmons, has used that as a vehicle to push forward her own take on the story, which is it's kind of like a mixture between a profile, an investigative journalism piece, and an opinion piece. I actually think it's it's an
1: opinion piece. I think it's a profile masquerading as an opinion piece because I think – For those people who want to read the story, we'll also put this in our show notes. But I think you can see what the journalist wants to write before she walks into the interview. And that's one of the most dangerous things a journalist can do, I think, because she has an absolutely closed mind. I think she wanted to write a story about rumors she had heard about Sarah Wilson maybe having a dysfunctional relationship with food and then writing about whether that matters when she's launching a movement called I Quit Sugar and making millions off it. Eve Simmons wrote on Twitter when she published the story that she was nervous about writing it, but she said, I'm fed up of hearing off the record of wellness bloggers who push out pictures of perfectly lit vegetables in the name of health whilst hiding their own messed up eating problems. Of course, there's absolutely no shame in any mental health problem. And speaking as a survivor of one, it would serve our health far better if these people would just be honest about their real problems rather than masking them with pseudoscientific food rules. I understand her general point in that if you're hearing these rumors, you want to understand what's going on and you want to understand that if someone is making millions off a of business, why what might be the motivations for that? Mm. That's it. There's something just a bit icky about how the story came to be. There's something icky about the fact that she'd clearly heard these rumors before she went into the interview, maybe used Sarah Wilson's anxiety book as a vehicle to get the interview and then published this. I, I'm i interested in this idea, Michelle, of whether she has any right to make an inference that, that Sarah Wilson has disordered eating with food and whether that therefore matters in the context of the work she's done.
2: I think based on that tweet, no. I think impartiality and curiosity and a search for the truth are at the heart of good journalism. And if you are sharing your article and saying, well, I'd heard whispers for ages, here's the piece that I wrote about them. Which is you paraphrasing, by the way. Yeah, but you're not curious enough. They completely lacked curiosity and open-mindedness. I think she went in with an agenda, to be brutally honest.
1: absolutely. Also, there's a line in the piece about the fact that the journalist herself has – had her own issues around mental health and food and you can actually see that playing out that there's a lot of uh, personal resentment there which is which is you're allowed to have I don't think we can ever sideline our personal resentment or personal ideas and beliefs and values when we're writing but you would hope it doesn't kind of push out onto the
2: page absolutely and I understand that I had a I have a history of disordered eating in my past as well and I am angry at certain health influencers who told me not to snack and told me to have a glass of water when I felt hungry and gave all of these hunger management tips when I was 18. I totally get where the anger comes from, but you need to be careful when you're writing a story like this. And I think it was very one-sided and very unfair. And I'm not saying that I agree with everything Sarah Wilson does. I'm actually very on the fence about this entire story. I don't know where I sit, and that's the first time in a long time that I've felt truly pulled between two different arguments. Sarah Wilson isn't a scientist, she isn't a doctor, she isn't a dietitian, but she is a journalist and one that has put a decent level of research into what she does. There are still Scientific journals and articles that back up Sarah Wilson's claims. Last month, a study was published in the National Institute of Health Journal by Dr. Catherine Evans that did find that high sugar intake worsens autoimmune disease in mice. It's not like the crux of Sarah Wilson's empire has been debunked and she's walked away from it. What I think this story is, is that she still eats sugar in very low amounts. I think she actually stands by a lot of what she did. She just found another purpose, another passion. I do want to also add that she also gives all profits from any spin-off of I Quit Sugar Now – to a philanthropic trust, and in the last year has donated $60,000 worth of bikes to African schools and $113,000 to homeless women in Australia. So she's not taking any money from this empire anymore. Any e-book, any program, anything attached to I Quit Sugar now goes to this philanthropic trust. So this is where I'm absolutely in two
1: minds as well, and it must be the most annoying segment for people to listen to, but I think that matters, the fact that you don't always have to have the firmest opinion on every single thing. Kate Lever, who is a journalist based in London – did say it's an awkward thing to call out someone for having an eating disorder but it's extremely relevant when your business is selling that disorder to other people posing as someone who knows what they're talking about there's that on one hand and when you said there have been studies published that back up Sarah Wilson's claim about the fact that heaps of sugar isn't good for you I I actually don't think that's the point I don't think people have ever been annoyed by this idea that sugar is not always good for you I think it's the absolutism of the I quit sugar and that you need to give up all forms of sugar that's always uh, rubbed people up the wrong
2: way and that's actually a great point i was going to say that as well because i think the what made i quit sugar so marketable and so profitable was how reductive it was in that she said, I quit sugar. Her best-selling title, Sarah Wilson's best-selling title is called, I Quit Sugar for Life. And that makes this incredibly awkward and the optics of this very confusing. I understand why people would look at this on face value and go, she's an idiot. She's walked away from this empire. She's kind of taken us all for a ride. But the photo emblazoned on Sarah Wilson's website, sarahwilson.com, is of her donned in a singlet that says sugar sucks. I think the optics of this are so bad because the way this was marketed was so basic. And this isn't a basic thing. And Sarah Wilson admits that. So the thing that made her successful is also the very thing that makes her chastised.
1: But I think the thing that confuses me and makes my mind go around in circles as well is what happens if you do change your mind? Mm. What happens if you realise that your body does need elements of sugar? And I know a lot of people turn around and say, well, don't make a business off it. But like we keep coming back to, it's not like she sold that business and took a profit. She closed the business. Mm. She donated, like you said, a whole bunch of stuff after it was finished like is this not the ideal scenario for what happens when someone realizes they don't want to live by the movement they created anymore
2: Mm, and see I don't even know if that's fair because then I've read that She didn't ever say quit sugar 100%. Apparently, there was an eight week boot camp where you cut sugar out entirely to then live a life that's more sugar free. I think it's the name I quit sugar is so erroneous because you're not quitting sugar, you're reducing sugar. That's
1: exactly right. I don't think that you can leverage off the absolutism of both that book title and the concept itself and then turn around and say,
2: I didn't actually tell people to quit sugar in its entirety. She should. I think what would have been the best response is to come out on Instagram and be like, you know what? The name I Quit Sugar was never accurate and I don't stand by that name anymore. It should be I Reduce Sugar. But the thing is, is it makes it so clickbaity to say I Quit Sugar. That's why people buy it. That's why people are interested in it. Exactly.
1: I would throw it out there that I don't think the movement would have nearly as much success if it was named anything else.
2: Everything else would be boring because the facts of this are boring. It's complicated. You probably need to reduce sugar and that's not going to sell any books. No one gives a crap about that. So if she had come out and said to this journalist, you know what it wasn't as black and white as I made it seem that was a way to sell books I do regret that name now this would have been so much easier do you think though people would have been outraged by that I don't know people are going to be outraged I, I
1: know but I think it just proves how complicated this story is um, I would love to get people's thoughts come into our Facebook group Shameless Podcast community hopefully you guys can come to a firmer conclusion than we can I'm so
2: on the fence I think the one question I want to know from the listeners and maybe you Zara before we wrap this up I do want to know how much trust Can we put in the hands of a journalist who does something in the health space? If you don't have a degree, but you're not, say, an influencer who's just coming to this with... An idea in your head, how much can we trust a journalist who does this?
1: It's a really hard question to answer because I think if I turn around and say not much, then what does that say about any health journalism altogether? Science journalism, science writing. And that stuff matters, but it's journalism. It's not research. And I think there is a distinction there between starting a business and a movement based on you soliciting your own research and a journalist writing a piece for a publication that has ethics and standards
2: and a value statement, I think. And doesn't it say a lot? I mean, last week we were talking about the weight loss trilogy and how that was a doctor, so that was good. This week it's a journalist, it's kind of like, Who can you trust when it comes to what to put in your body? Everyone has such different ideas as to what the perfect diet is. There is no consensus on the perfect diet, and it will continue this way for a really long time. It's such a confusing area of life. Thank you so much for (laughs) listening. I'm about to jump on a plane, and Michelle
1: will join me and my parents in about 24 (laughs) hours. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We are on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. If you want to be so kind, you could always... Give us a
2: five star review or something like that. I don't know. Oh, cute! We haven't said that in a while. Also, yeah. click subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts. If you want to see our show pop into your feed every week when we drop a new episode, click subscribe. If you're on Spotify, please click follow.
1: And I think we'll be in areas on Thursday. And when I say I
0: think, I mean I know. Hopefully, with better voices. Bye. Bye. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media.